So this week, this week we come to the final step in our discipleship process. And this step is obviously closely related to the other two. And one of the ways that I want you, and we've talked about this some already, one of the ways that I want you to come to think about these steps is they're not single, singular steps that you take, right? And when we get to go, it's certainly not the case with go. That what we're not asking you is to go on a singular trip or to make a singular decision or to have a singular conversation. What we're calling you to is a lifelong pursuit. What we're calling you to is to a lifelong pursuit of connecting, a lifelong pursuit of being discipled and discipling others, and then a lifelong pursuit of going. And, but there's also a reason that they're in the order that they're in. That there's a particular order, and it's because that going should be the necessary, natural, and certain result of the first two. That we connect together, that we might disciple one another, that we might deploy each other to reach the nations. That we might deploy each other to make disciples here in Calhoun County and to the very ends of the earth. And so there's a natural progression. There's an, an intentional flow as one builds on top of the other so that we might ultimately make disciples of all nations. And I think it's also important for us to clarify what we mean when we say the word go. Okay, I think when we hear go, we think grass hut in Africa. And y'all, I think that's part of it. Like, you, you know my heart on that, right? Like, I'm the first one on the plane ready to go, right? But, but going encompasses far more than that. Going is far more than that. Going encompasses every single spirit-equipped way in which Jesus is calling us to make disciples. So, so going encompasses youth ministry. Going encompasses children's ministry. Going encompasses you, uh, moms who go home to a husband that doesn't know Jesus yet. That's going. Going encompasses the way that you lead business meetings and business relationships. Going encompasses uh, going and, and partnering with Diane Smith on, in West Anniston to feed the hungry. Going encompasses partnering with the Feltners in, uh, in Lots Creek. Going encompasses going and planting churches that perhaps are in other regions of our community or other regions of our county or, or along Highway 9 in places that maybe don't yet have a faithful gospel witness that's close by. And going can encompass you uprooting your family and moving to a, a city that you can't yet pronounce to plant a church there. That going encompasses all of these things as the Spirit of God deploys us with the Word of God sent out from the people of God to spread the glory of God. And so what I want us to see this morning is that God didn't save a single one of us to be a kingdom supervisor. <laughs> Not a single one of us. Like none of us are called by the Lord to sit on the row and to point and demand and, and watch as all the activity is happening. No, what, what the Great Commission is calling every single one of us to is a roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, get in the grit and the grime pursuit of helping other people find joy and hope in Christ. And what I want us to answer this morning then is why do we go? Why do we go? You know, it's interesting. I'm telling you, this second service, y'all, like the first service is flawless, baby. I mean flawless. And then the second service, our technology just has a seizure. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. Um, but so it's interesting that the text that we read this morning in which Jesus is calling his disciples to be salt. And, oh, we're going we to we do that today, huh?
four hours. All right, that's better. And John Blanton, ladies and gentlemen, right? <laughs> and if y'all only knew the number of man hours that Andrew Nunnally particularly spent up here this week, like going through every, I mean, I, I, I think we would all be embarrassed to know how, how much time he spent working through the technology stuff this week, but it just happens, right? So, so what's interesting is as Jesus is calling his disciples to be salt and light, it's three years before he gives the Great Commission. Three years before. So, so think about this. Before Jesus has really clarified, before they really even have a clear view on who he is as the Messiah. At the very beginning of him, his instruction of his disciples. At the very beginning, Jesus is already planning in the hearts and minds of his disciples what the mission is. From the very beginning. He, he is telling them from the beginning, we're entering in a pursuit together. We're pursuing something and we're headed in a direction together. And let me tell you where we're headed. Where we're headed, you're going to be sought. You're going to be light. Now, I find comfort in that because I think what we see is, first of all, Jesus is a strategic thinker. Do you see this? Jesus is, a, he's no joke of a leader. We think sometimes that Jesus has kind of felt his way through this. Jesus knew what he was doing. In fact, Jesus had a discipleship process that I think we have tried to emulate here in our discipleship process. Think about what he does. Jesus calls his disciples. Jesus then connects his disciples to one another. Jesus disciples them. He instructs them. He trains them. And then what does he do? He sends them. He deploys them, right? So, so what we see here in Jesus is we see Jesus working this out in a discipleship process that's very similar to ours. And so he starts them and he starts us at the basics from the very beginning. And so why do we go? We go because our nature flows into mission. Our nature flows into our mission. Now, when I say nature, I want you to understand what I mean by that. I mean our new nature, okay? So we are born with a nature that loves the darkness. We are born with a nature that is bent towards sin. We are born with a nature that is moving us toward death. But Jesus, when he saves us by his grace, we are born again. We, we become a new creation. We receive a new nature by the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are become regenerate. And so now the spirit that we have is no longer the spirit of death. It is no longer the spirit of the natural man. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of Christ himself that dwells within us. And now by that nature, by that nature, we're able to move forward. And so you'll notice that you have these two emphatic statements. And it's extraordinary the way that Jesus words them because they say two different things. So he says, you are. You see that? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the earth. And I find those extraordinary because the, the things that he tells his disciples that, he, they, that they are and, the, and what he's telling us that we are, are those things which on one hand get to the nature, the identity, the, the essence of who the disciples are. And then on the other hand, get to the effect that the disciples are to have. You see this? So, so, so both nature and mission are found in these words, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That, that's what you are. That's your essence. That's your nature. That's your identity. That's, that, that's who I have formed you to be in my image. That, that's who I'm creating you to be. And at the same time, not only are you salt, not only are you light, but you are to have the effect that salt has on rotting meat. You are to have the effect that light has in the dark. Now, 
what, how can we, why would we really say he's getting a nature? Now remember what he's been talking about here. Leading up to these verses, he's been in those Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes tell us what? They describe who a disciple is. Jesus uses the Beatitudes to talk about how the posture of the disciple's heart is different than the posture of a normal person's heart. How the, how the thinking of a disciple is different. How they process decisions. How their worldview is altered. How their, their perceptions of themselves and their perceptions of other people and their pursuits in the world and the things that... How all of their motives and all of, their, all of those things are different. Look at what he says. And these are things that you can't see, right? They get to the nature. What does he say? He says, the blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who lower themselves. Those who don't seek to be haughty, but those who seek to be humble. Blessed are they. That's something you can't see. It's, it's, it's within, right? Blessed are those who mourn. He's, he's getting inward, right? He's continuing to talk about nature. Blessed are the meek. How do you measure meekness? You can't do it. You can't do it. Why? Because meekness is part of the inner person. Meekness is a part of your identity before God. It's, it's, it's part of those internal conversations that all of us have with ourselves and then wonder if we're the only crazy one that does it, right? Like, like all of these things are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who, now, it's hard enough to measure hunger and thirst. It's even harder. It's impossible to measure whether or not someone hungers and thirsts for righteousness, right? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so what you can see salt and light are accomplishing is salt and light are summaries of all those beatitudes, aren't they? They're a way for Jesus to take all of these heart attitudes, all of these impulses, all of these, this transformation of the, na- of the nature. And he says, because you are poor in spirit, because you are those who mourn, because you are meek, because you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you are merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, because all of those things are, are true, we can, I can summarize that by saying this. You are salt. You are light. It gets to the nature. But then, but then, it doesn't just stop at the nature. Then it encompasses the new mission as well. So that we can see that salt and light shows the extraordinary effect that this inward nature is now to have on the world. That Jesus transforms us, and Jesus transforms us so that we will make peace in the world, right? Jesus transforms us not just so that we can be at home and be transformed in the Lord. Jesus transforms us so that we will have a transformative effect on the world. Listen to what he says. What can salt do but be salty? What can light do but shine? What can a disciple do but make disciples? You see? It gets to the essence of the mission. That our nature leads to our mission. That because we have Jesus' nature, Jesus' nature flows through Jesus' disciples into Jesus' mission. It it reminds us of what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Andrew read the passage when we were beginning our service today. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. And by understanding that Jesus says that I am the light of the world, we learn how we become the light of the world. We become the light of the world not because there's some kind of incandescent quality about us. We become the light of the world because we abide in Christ. 
Because we are branches and he is the vine. And he, filled with light, he, filled with life, he, filled with hope, is bound to us. And it's through this mysterious, Christ-bought, blood-stained union with Jesus that who he is begins to flow through who we are. That what, he seek, what he's seeking to accomplish, he's seeking to accomplish, and he's accomplishing it through us. So it's the mission, the nature working inwardly, the mission flowing outwardly. See, there's a significant point being made to his disciples. Now, there were, there were two, if you, you probably picked up on this, and you probably thought I was cheating, and shame on you because I don't cheat. You noticed probably that I skipped to the two final Beatitudes there, didn't you? And I skipped them. Why? Because those can be seen outside. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. You can see persecution. You may not be able to see a, a peacemaking spirit. You may not be able to see mercy. You may not be able to see a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you can see those who are persecuted. He says, blessed are those who revile you. Those who revile you. How does he, how does he encompass that? This is where it gets to the mission, right? This is where the nature is leading to the mission. Why will they be persecuted? Why will they be reviled? When you're light in the midst of the darkness, you're distinct. You stand out. When you are salt, that is when you are a source of life in a world permeated with death, you stand out. And the world rejects that which stands out. We don't like that which looks different than us. It makes us distinct and we are, we're as distinct as Salt is from rotting meat. We're as distinct as darkness is from light. We're as distinct as life is from death. But what I find true among many Christians, and what I find true so often in my very own heart, is that we prefer not to shine. We prefer to blend. We prefer to blend. That the reason that we live such mediocre Christian lives, as mediocre a Christian life as we can possibly stand, right? Is because we don't want to stand off. That's why we take conversations that are moving toward religion and moving toward Jesus and moving toward conversations about God at work and we move them a different direction. That's why when there's someone that's asking for help and asking for hope at work, asking for advice in their marriage, asking for what we do is we begin to privatize our faith and we'll go and, and sit on a different table and eat in a different place because, because we don't want to invite some some, some uh, awkwardness, some ridicule into our life. Even though it might help them, there's also the possibility, isn't there, that they can look down upon us. And they can look down on their nose and they can say, this, this unintellectual fool, who are you? Don't give me all the Jesus spiel, right? We, we've taken our faith and we've privatized it and we've, we've turned it inwardly so that nobody else, even in our own families, could convict us of following after Jesus if they had a full video of everything we did in an entire day. So the Lord is calling us to be distinct, as, as distinct as light in the midst of darkness, as distinct as salt in the middle of rotting food, as, as life and death, and we're content just to blend in. And you know what it is? It is a denial, a denial of the wonderful Christ-bought reality that you have been united with the light. It's a denial of your own identity. It's a denial of who Christ has made you to be and who Christ is transforming you to be. It's a denial of your own nature, of the nature that now inside of you is alive, which once was dead, which is saved, which once was lost, which is filled with hope, which once was in despair. So why do we go? We go because it's our nature to go. Why do we share the gospel? We, we share the gospel because it's in our nature 
Now, if it's both our nature and our mission to be salt and light, what exactly do salt and light do? I think, I think this is a helpful conversation. So, so what exactly is in Jesus' mind? So if we're talking about salt, like still today in, in our culture, it's, it's less so, but it's still important. We have these things called chest freezers. And you would not believe the number of people around the world that would murder for a chest freezer. Like it could, it could, It's life-changing, right? But in third world countries today, and, and really throughout antiquity, right? Like what the, the only way to preserve your food and your sustenance and your protein was with salt. It was with salt. Why is that? Meat left in it, when you harvest an animal, within a matter of hours, that meat begins to decay, doesn't it? Within a matter, a matter of hours, that meat begins to rot. But you could take salt and properly preserve meat, that which has been salted and smoked and, and has the salt rubbed into it the right way by someone who, who knows how to, how to treat it properly. You can actually stave off the rot. And much of that salted meat, it can last for much longer than hardly anything that you could find in another source. So the purpose of, of salt in Jesus' era, the primary purpose of it was to stave off rot. It was to stop that which naturally occurs. And it reminds me of what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I, I wrote this quote up here on the screen. He says, the world left to itself is something that tends to fester. The world left to itself is something that tends to fester. That is, the natural course of the world is rot. The natural course of the world is death, decay, decomposition. The natural course of society is not evolution, it's de-evolution. We are devolving, right? It's the devolving of ethics. It's the devolving of morality. It's the, the devolving of, of a wholesome way of life. It's the devolving of the family. It's the devolving of, of society and all of those fundamental building blocks that bring it together. That the natural course, unless there is an intervention, Unless there is something that, that steps in and intervenes, the natural course is the way until rot, to decomposition, to decay. So what's the purpose of salt? What's our purpose? Our purpose is to stave off that which is natural with that which is supernatural. To step in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to stop, preserve the world from its natural path of decomposition. Because you and I, you and I were on that natural path too. You and I were headed toward rot. You and I were headed toward death. You and I were headed toward hopelessness. Now, what's the purpose of light? So if on the negative side, we would say that, that uh, the salt is stopping something. The, the, the salt is stopping the process of rot. It's stopping the process of decomposition. It's stopping the, pro the process of death setting in. Light is on the positive. Light is advancing something. Light is shining on the path so that now you can see where to go. Light is illuminating the house so that now you can all navigate the house easily. Light is, is shining over the sea through the lighthouse, which appears so treacherous and is promising you rocks that are going to destroy you and light shines over it to show that the sea isn't terrifying it's actually breathtaking right that that light advances the kingdom right salt preserves the world light advances the kingdom and you see it's in this way that we join the mission it's in this way that we join the very same mission that, G, that God instituted with Abraham so many thousands of years ago, if you'll remember when uh, Andrew preached that passage at the beginning of the big story. 
That in the beginning, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through this nation, what does he say? I'm going to bless every nation. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth because I'm going to manifest my glory through you. And by manifesting my glory and showing my kindness and my mercy and my presence through you, I'm going to be a blessing to every nation. It's the same thing, same mission that Jesus says that he came for in that conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, isn't it? Nicodemus, why did I come? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That our mission, in other words, is to bless the world. Our mission is to bless the world. Do you realize that we are gifts from God to the world? We are gifts from God to the world. See what he says, right? You are salt of what? The earth. The earth. You, you are light of what? Of the world. Light of the world. He says in verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. That there's this comprehensive concept in the mind of Jesus as he's preparing his disciples for, for, the, for the mission that's ahead. And I want you to listen to what that means, y'all. We are not against the world. We are distinct from the world. We are different than the world. We are set apart within the world. But we're not against the world. We are for the world. We are for their redemption. We are for their hope. We are for their happiness. We are for their marriages. We are for their children. We are for their education. We are for the world. See, I think many of us likely grew up in a faith tradition that had an us versus them mentality. That many of us grew up in a faith tradition and it was us versus the world, right? And so once a week we came together and we talked about all the things that we were angry about and we talked about all the things that they were doing wrong and all the reasons that, that it was going to hell in a handbasket and we were come together and we had our rally and we had our pity party and then we all went and we tried to stay as uncontaminated as possible and talk to as few people as possible. And as a result, as a result, the church has been more unified by what we are against than who we are for. And y'all, the church is more famous and more known for what we are against. We could go into our community and they can name 20 things that we stand against, but I don't know that they could find one that we know that we are in unison and for. Our community does not need another church that is standing against everything. Our community needs a congregation of people, a fellowship of believers that will say, I am for you. Jesus has brought me into the world because I am for the world. You see, it shouldn't surprise us that the world is rotting. What choice does meat have? It is the natural progression. It is the natural step. The question is not why is all the meat rotting. The question is, is where is the salt? Where is the salt? That we gather together for our re weekly rallies and we complain about all the sin that's out there. Never mind the sin that's in here, right? We complain about all the, the sin that's out there. And Jesus is saying, well, that's fine, but why are you in here? Go into the world. Go into the world. I want you to think about how this was lived out in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is on his way to Galilee, and he stops in Samaria. Nobody goes to Samaria. And he's at the well, and there's, he's with the wrong woman at the wrong time of day, talking about the wrong thing. She's been married five times. Five times. And now she's cohabitating with a man that is not her husband. 
there's a, in John chapter 8, just before Jesus says, I am the light of the world, do you remember what happens? You have the, the woman caught red-handed in the act of adultery, and she's brought to Jesus, and all the Pharisees are there, and they have rocks, and they're fixing to cave her skull in because she's been caught red-handed. You have Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, and there he is, and he's sitting in his tax booth when Jesus finds him. Sitting there, waiting, preparing, planning to rob his people all day long. And then at the end of the night, it appears as though, from what we can tell, that Matthew would go home to parties with the harlots at his house. Jesus caught every single one of them red-handed. Jesus caught every single one of them walking against the righteousness of the Lord. And yet Jesus did not antagonize a single one of them, did he? Not a single one of them. Jesus did not speak against a single one of them, did he? Jesus did not stand up on his bully pulpit, and he could have, y'all. He is actually righteous. He didn't stand up and say, how dare you, and how dare you, and how dare you. What did he say? Come unto me. Come unto me. I have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Come, come unto me. Oh, church, oh, church, where are the churches that aren't antagonizing the sinners, but are living for them? We're placed here in the Chakalaka Valley to be a blessing here. To be a blessing here. To preserve it here. To bring peace here. To bring joy here. To brighten those here. We are here for the school. We are here for the family, for the marriages, for the brokenhearted, for the confused, for the afraid. We're not going to Salt Lake because we're against the Mormons. Do you understand that? I want, I want that resolved in our hearts this morning. We are not going to Salt Lake because we are against the Mormons. We are going to Salt Lake because we are for the Mormons. Because we are for them. Because we, want, we are for them being able to stop pretending. Because we are, are for them to be able to stop performing and having to live worthy of a God in which they are incapable of living worthy. Because we are, are for their children being set free. Because we are for their depression rates decreasing. Because we are for their hope. We go on mission not because of what we are against. We go because we are for the world and we are for the glory of God. So when he says, let your light shine before others, you'll see that right here in verse 16. Let your light shine before others. It is so that they may be able to see your good works. And seeing your good works, they can see that Jesus is radically calling them. That through your accessibility, they're able to catch a glimpse of, of Jesus' accessibility to them. That through your gracious living, through your kindness, through your compassion, through your mercy, through all of these things in your life, now they're able to glimpse who God is and who Christ is and what Christ is calling them to be. See, these are good works, and, and we get this, we mess this up in the church, okay? Sometimes we, we get the, one of two spectrums. All that matters is just the gospel, so it doesn't matter what I do. And we don't, and so we just preach, 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 and the world's like, why don't you ever do anything, right? And then there's the other side. There's, there's the other side that says, well, all that matters is what they see in me. I'm just going to do, 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 and it doesn't matter what I ultimately say. As a matter of fact, I'm probably not going to say anything because I don't want to be offensive, Right? Both of those are out of view here. Both of those are out of sync here. That what we're seeing, I'm going to draw what's going to, I hope, look like a target, right? This is aimed righteousness. Aimed good works. That is, that we are to do good works in a specific way. 
that we are to show kindness. We are to show compassion. But it's not just kindness for kindness' sake. It's not compassion just for compassion's sake. It's kindness and compassion for the purpose of revealing the glory of God, of revealing the glory of the Father, right? It's, it's aimed. In, in other words, it's, it's missional kindness. It's missional compassion. It's missional mercy. Should we feed the hungry? Yes. Yes. We should feed the hungry. But our primary mission is not to feed the hungry. Our primary mission is to reveal the glory of God. So we should, re- we should feed the hungry in a way that reveals the, fa- the glory of the Father. Should we clothe the naked? Yes, we should clothe the naked. But we, it, it's not, our, our primary mission is not to clothe the naked. We, our, our primary mission is to reveal the glory of the Father. So we should clothe the naked in a way that reveals the glory of the Father. We should be the most compassionate person that people know at work. We should be the most approachable pe- person that people know at work. We should be the person in the neighborhood that is the easiest to wave at and know you're going to get a wave back. But all of those things are nonsense unless they're for the purpose of revealing the glory of God, of preserving the world from its death, and of shining light, shining light on the advancement of the kingdom. You see, Jesus is not calling us to abandon society. Jesus is not calling us to start a new monastery of Baptists over here in Calhoun County, a compound in which we can, we can separate ourselves from the world. No, what Jesus is actually calling us to is to go deeper into society. He's calling us to make ourselves a part of society in the same way that salt makes itself a part of the meat, rubbed in, rubbed in. So that being rubbed into society, now as the salt, we're able to be where the rot is. We're able to be where the pain is. We're able to be where the hopelessness is. We're able to be where all of the ag- We're able to be there. And being there, we can transform it from death into life. So why do we go? We go to bless the world. We go to bless. We go because it's our nature. But we go to bless the world. Now for many of you, if I were to ask you why we should go, the answer that you would give would be an answer of duty because Jesus told me to, right? I've been in church, I know. I know these things. Jesus said it, I will do it. And y'all, that's fantastic. Like, I, I, I hope that completely rocks your heart in a way that I struggle for it to rock mine, right? Because it is a responsibility and it is a call to duty. But as self-absorbed humans, we struggle to be inspired by duty. We struggle to be inspired by responsibility. And the call for Jesus calling us to go, it's a call to duty and responsibility, but it's a call to more than that. And I think we see two different motives here in our text. That our motive is more than duty. And in these two, I want you to notice, first of all, that he says in verse 15, at the end, he says, to all in the house. To all in the house. He says, people... Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. What, what, is, what is the implication there? The implication there is that all the house needs light. That everybody in the house needs the light to be able to do what God has called for them to do. To be able to find what they're looking for. To be able to, to see where, where Jesus is, is calling for them to go. It's the same reason that he uses the word earth and the word world, right? The implication there is that everybody in the earth needs this. That there's a distinction that's being drawn. That when you see 
the effect that salt has in preserving and staving off rot, it occurs to you and it contrasts just how badly the rest of the world needs salt. It shows the, how badly the rest of the world is battling rot. When, when you have a light on in the midst of a cave for the very first time, it occurs to you how dark it's always been and how dark it still is in so many places, right? So, so it's a call for us to what? To feel the burden of the nations. To feel the burden of those that are facing rot and death. To feel the burden of those who are walking in darkness. To feel the burden of those things. That is, that it's more than a call to duty. It's a call to brokenness. That we must be motivated by a true sense of brokenness for those who are far from God. Those who don't have hope. Those who don't have joy. Those who, whose future is not certain. Those who are living under deception. Those whose lives are rotting out from under them. Let me ask you, are you broken? Are you broken? Can you name one unchurched, unreached friend in your life for which you're truly broken? Can, can you think about orphans on the other side of the world whose names you don't know and whose faces you've never seen and be genuinely broken? Broken that they may go to bed hungry? Broken that they may die without Jesus? See, that's supernatural. That has to, that, that, that has to be supernaturally in, given. I want you to think about this. If this morning, God forbid, while we're in here in worship, imagine that a tornado, an F5 tornado, dropped down on one of the streets in our community. And it wiped out three consecutive houses. Houses that had mamas and daddies and little boys and little girls. If that cry came in here, there would be a sense of duty that we would all have, wouldn't there? If they, if they were needing help, there would be a sense of duty and responsibility. But I can tell you one thing, it would be more than that that all of us would be able to picture ourselves in their situation. We would be able to hear about the eight-year-old little girl in that house that's buried beneath the rubble, and I would be able to see the face of my eight-year-old little girl on hers, and we would go as fast as we could to those neighborhoods, and we would dig through every stuffed animal and baseball card and photograph all of the rubble from the foundation, and we would dig and dig and dig at the potential of being able to save them from this horrific catastrophe that struck them unexpectedly. Brothers and sisters, those same streets are filled with those same families, and they are on a path of eternal catastrophe. They are on a path of eternal catastrophe. And it, it's more than a call to duty. It's a call to brokenness. That that little girl who is just like our little girl, that mom who is just like our wife, our daughter, just like us, that call to that dad to go and to be brokenhearted and to be moved to go and to bring the salt and the light into the midst of their life. Are we broken? Are we broken? And as strong a motivating factor as brokenness is, there's actually a stronger motivation given. A stronger motivation given. And it, it, we've referenced it already. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is, that the primary motive of missions is what? It's the greatness of God. The primary motive of missions is the greatness of God. That it seems crazy. It seems crazy. And this is so much of Jesus' point. It seems crazy that God would give you a light and you would take that light and you would put it under a basket. 
Why is that crazy? I mean, the only reason that you would put a light under a basket is what? You're embarrassed by it. You're ashamed of it. You don't want people to see it. You don't want people to associate you with it. And so Jesus is here and he's saying, have I not given you a light? Have I not given you myself? Do you not abide with me and me with you? I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Why would you take this light? Why would you live as though you are embarrassed by me? Brothers and sisters, how many of us are living as though we're not proud of Jesus? How many of us are living as though Jesus embarrasses us? In our conversations, in our lunch dates, in our meetings, in our car rides, in our commute, the parties that we go to, the places that we see, our families, with our children, with our spouse. How many of us are living? We have been given the glory of Christ dwelling within us. Dwelling within us. Do you live proud of Jesus? Because it's the greatness of God that is the hope of the world. Not modern medicine, not scientific discovery, not intellectual achievement, not complete tolerance. It is the greatness of God. You see, brothers and sisters, the king found you when you were eating out of garbage cans. And he saw you eating the refuse of the world. And he wept for you. And he stopped his motorcade and he brought you into his limo. And he paraded you all the way to his palace. He invited you into the banquet that was prepared. You sat at his table, unthinkable that you were eating garbage a few minutes ago. And here you are eating the bounty of the king at the banquet that he has prepared. The king stands and you're struck by his glory as he stands in his robes and in his crown. And he makes an announcement, I have a new heir. I have a new heir, and you, having just seen what he's capable of, are excited, taking in his immense wealth and his immense glory as to who will be his heir. And he says, it will be my new son. It will be you. That you will inherit all that you see. You will inherit all that I have. You will inherit all that I have purchased for you by the blood of my true son. Until... Until your inheritance is fully given, you will go and you will be my ambassador. You will go to the other kingdoms and you will tell them that I am great and you will tell them that I am kind. And as they find themselves eating garbage too, you will invite them to come and to be co-heirs with you. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, if that is true, if that actually happened, how many of us would be embarrassed by our king? How many of us would be ashamed of him? Even if the other kingdoms reject us. Even if the other people see and think that we're crazy. Even if the other people try to humiliate us for enjoying and living in the kindness of this king. How many many of us would waver? How many of us would stop? No, no, our God is really that great and so much greater and is through us, through us in this world that his glory is intended to shine. Why do we go? Why do we go? We go because our hearts are broken and we go because our king is great. Will you go? Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. 
we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.